goodness. Have you ever thought about that? How do we measure the goodness of God? What is the standard that we really use to determine if God is good or not? Is He true? If He's faithful to His promises? By what standard? Now certainly in the good times, it's easy for us to say God is good. There's that that uh, that that saying that's it's become kind of a, a, a cliche. I think that's the word that I'm looking for. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. It's very easy to say that when the sun is shining, when it's uh, my, I got my, uh, my my padded bank account, I've got my my family is healthy and safe and happy. All is good in the world, and it is easy to say God is good. But what about when our current experience? doesn't seem to match up with that statement. When what God promised doesn't necessarily seem to be what I'm experiencing, then what do we do? How do we measure the goodness of God in those times? During our days and times of trouble, and particularly when those times of trouble, those days of trouble turn into weeks and even months, these extended periods of grief and uncertainty. Our circumstances, our feelings about the circumstances can cause us to question or even doubt the truths that we believe about God. I think a week ago, everybody in this room would have advised that God is good and we could have found uh, 10,000 reasons uh, that God is good. And I'm not saying that we've lost all of those reasons, but I am um, pretty pretty certain that for many of us, it's been a little bit more difficult to find those reasons, to think about those things in that way. So what do we do? I think we all would like to be like Job. You remember Job from the Old Testament where he was on the top of everything. He was, he was having the best day of his life and then the best day of his life turned into the worst day of his life and he lost everything. His home, Family, wealth, his animals, servants, friends. Even his own wife turned against him and his friends can uh, attacked him for being a sinner. That's why God was punishing him. And yet in the midst of all that pain and sorrow, Job said this, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I think all of us would like to be able to say that. In our darkest days, The Lord is given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. No matter what happens, blessed be the name of the Lord. But when they're in the middle of pain, it's not as easy to say. When you're losing, when you have lost, it's not at the tip of our tongue. And it takes a little bit more discipline, a little bit more intentionality to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. So how exactly are we going to do that? This morning, I want to show you through Psalm 77 what I just I borrowed from a, a, a line of a, in a commentary that I read, uh, the objective facts of faith. Very simple outline, and it'll be a minute before you see where I am in the outline, but I want, I want you to follow along through Psalm 77 with me. So if you keep your Bible open and listen as we walk through Asaph's words, we find Asaph is... Uh, the writer here, and he was, he's recording a time when he finds himself uh, and possibly the whole nation of Israel 
in great trouble and distress. The exact trouble is uncertain, is unknown. We don't know exactly why he's saying these things. But we know that whatever it is, it's a really big deal. And it's been going on for some time. And as we begin in verse number 1, we see that Asaph the psalmist turns to God for help and he turns to God for relief and comfort and he cries out to God. And this wasn't simply praying for help. This is way past that. That might have happened in the first initial moment. The shock, the awe of all the things that that happened to him. He might have simply prayed. But he's gotten to the point in in his psalm that he is crying out for help. And he says it twice there. I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God. And whenever we see in in Hebrew poetry these repeated statements, that's how they emphasize things. We put everything in capital letters. We put exclamation points. But they repeat phrases. And he is saying, "I I am turning to God and not simply praying. I'm crying out. I I am shouting out to God. And confident that He will hear me. But then as we read verse 2, we find out a little bit more about this lament, this psalm of crying out to God. He says there that he seeks the Lord in the day of his trouble. But not just, not just during the daytime. When night falls, he doesn't put it away and go to sleep and pick it up in the morning. Yet all through the night, he says, unwearying, his hand is stretched out. And he says, in the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. He's tirelessly continuing to seek God in this matter. Because he's looking for comfort. He's looking for answers. He's looking for some hope, some help in his trouble, and yet he's not finding it. And instead, he finds himself unsettled. He finds himself desperate. But as we see that as he seeks after God, verse number 3 is, is, is rather surprising because it doesn't turn out the way that we would expect it to turn out. He says, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. It seems that his thoughts towards God have, have not, not, has not only not helped him, but it's made him feel worse. Because remembering God and thinking about this covenant God causes a greater disturbance, loses his strength. Because these are, this is not how things were supposed to go for him. This was not how things were supposed to go for Israel. They were God's chosen people. They were supposed to be blessed. They were supposed to be prosperous and successful and happy and healthy and wealthy. But they're not there. And the psalmist is not there. And he's un- he doesn't understand why. It doesn't make sense to him. He's in, he's in a time of trouble and God is supposed to rescue them. He hasn't done it. Instead, he spends sleepless nights. Look, at if you see in verse 4, he can't sleep. He can't speak. He says, it feels like, God, it feels like you're holding my eyes open. I, I, I can't go to sleep. It's like you're, you won't let me go to sleep. Another place in the Psalms, it says that he, the Lord gives his beloved sleep. It's a gift from God to be able to go to sleep at night and to rest. And he says, I can't do it. It's like you're, you, you won't let me go to sleep. You won't let me rest and escape the, the trouble for a little while. And he's so troubled, he goes on in verse number 4 to say, I can't even, I can't even put it into words. I'm just, I just ache so much. Have you ever been there where you were just so upset and you don't even know what to say? 
You go to pray to God, you don't know what to say. Where do I start? Maybe I'm so mad I don't know what to say, or I'm so grieved I don't know what to say, but I just can't figure out exactly how to express what I feel. One, one writer, William Van Gemmeren, wrote that his active remembrance of God doesn't give comfort, but has the opposite effect. Groaning. Spiritual exhaustion. To this point, he's doing what we think every Christian should do. He's turning to God, and yet it's making matters worse. And during these long, sleepless nights, we see in verse 5 that he begins to think about days gone by. And by verse number 6, he is remembering this song in the night, and he's longing for this song in the night that would bring him peace and comfort, be able to finally get some rest. He meditates, and as you've no doubt have been there, where you're up late at night and your brain won't shut off, and you're thinking about all of the problems that are going on in your life at the moment, and, and, and your brain is, is, is just going at hyperspeed, it seems. You can't stop thinking about it, and it goes in a million different directions, and here's the psalmist. And he notices as he reflects, as he meditates and remembers in verse number 6, that his experience isn't matching God's promises. God had made promises to Israel, and Israel stood on those. They based everything that they were on those promises from God, and The psalmist is looking and saying, this is not what the promise was supposed to be like. This is not how I I expected and you would act, God. And as his spirit searches deep within the recesses of his heart and his soul, he finds that there's doubt. Doubt towards God. Doubt towards God's promises. Doubt towards the goodness and mercy of God. And he even questions God's promise because it's just not matching up. He finds himself wondering what happened to God's covenant promise. And God made a covenant with Israel. And that covenant would not be broken. It would be, it would be fulfilled and God would keep his end of the bargain. He would be faithful to it. This is not faithful to your promise, God. What's going on? And when we read in verse number 7, we begin to read six questions that he asks. It's a series of six questions that's really, it's only one question. Just asked six different ways. The same question over and over again. God, what happened to your promise? Was I right to believe that God would keep His promises to us? That the hope of God's people was founded on this promise that it just doesn't seem like God is keeping anymore. Will God reject us forever? Will He never again be favorable to us? Has His steadfast love, this is His hesed. The word hesed is is, is all throughout the Bible and we don't have one English word that really gets all of it. And so sometimes it's loving kindness and sometimes it's faithful love and sometimes as it is here, it's His his steadfast love. And, and And this is something that's supposed to be forever. And is it now not forever? Has it ceased? Has the promise come to a final end? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He withdrawn His compassion from us because He's angry with us? We don't know. We just know that what is going on right now is not good. And see, all of these questions that He's asking go back to a description that God gives of Himself. 
And I'm going to read to you from Exodus 34, and you can write it down and look at it a little bit later. But Exodus 34 and verse 6, God says this about Himself. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God describes Himself as one who abounds in steadfast love, one who is, who is gracious and slow to anger. And this is where His questions come from. I thought He was slow to anger. I thought He was forgiving. I thought He was loving and good. And in essence, He's saying my experience right now does not harmonize with a God who is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. Why doesn't He forgive us? Why doesn't He show us a little mercy and compassion? If we're honest, I think many of us have faced similar experiences. If you're not right now, good chance you have, good chance you will. We know that God is good. But with what we're facing in life, it's really hard to see that. The health of your own body or someone that you love. The the financial fall uh, struggles that people face. We look around in our society today and we think, and then this is not this is not how things are supposed to go. And especially in the way that it affects each and every one of us. It's really it's 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 not it's not often that we're not feeling some sort of this question. We want the God of mercy to, to come and see us in our grief and then do something about it. That's why we pray, right? And for many people, this failure on God's part to act on their behalf causes them to stumble. And they turn away from God because if this is how God treats me, and if this is how God is going to treat His people, I don't want anything to do with it. Because we expect God to come and save the day. When I call for Him, and I put that bat signal up in the sky, and I pray, and I get on my knees, I expect it to be answered. If not, when I, by the time I say amen, by the time I lay my head down tonight, I don't want to deal with this anymore. This is not right. This is not fair. We come up with all many good and noble reasons why God should and answer our prayer, and yet we don't always find that He is. Christopher Ash describes uh, these verses as a terrible mismatch between the promise and the actual state of Christ's church on earth. We refuse to get used to it, to adapt to it, to live with compromise, and we insist on urgent, persistent prayer. So what do we do with our confusion and our frustrations and our doubts? Well, the psalmist has set the example for us in first bringing these questions to God. His doubts about God's character, he brings directly to God. His questions about what will be, he brings directly to God. One, one writer uh, commented that this has a therapeutic effect, that we, that we bring our questions to God. But listen to how uh, Derek Kidner, a fantastic uh, scholar on, on the Psalms, and he wrote this. This is a clear example of the value of confessing one's doubts to God as the broad misgivings of verse 7 are spelled out more precisely in, ver- in the following verses, their inner contradictions come to light. With them, the possibility of an answer. 
He goes on to say, if steadfast love is pledged in God's covenant, it can hardly disappear. Or if God's promises come to nothing, the words forever and for all time underline the point. And to ask, has God forgotten, is to invite only one reply. By simply asking the question, kind of leads us to the answer. This doesn't make sense. This, is, this doesn't make sense with the God that I read about in the Bible, the God that I've experienced in my own life. And so as we see from the psalm that we first uh, need to acknowledge the trouble that we're in. That this is the trouble that, that's happening to me right now, God. And we acknowledge that and we bring that to God. But then secondly, we acknowledge the way that we feel about that trouble. Acknowledging our emotions. Some, something about our Western culture, especially Americans, we try to push it all down. We try to, we try to uh, let, let no one see that, well, how we're feeling about that, especially when it comes to our, our doubts and our questions about spiritual things. We want to let people put on a brave front and let people think that we're doing okay. And yet, in the prayer closet at least, that's not, that's not the right attitude. We acknowledge what our troubles and then we acknowledge our doubt and our, and our feelings, whether that be fear or confusion or hurt or grief or anger or whatever it may be. We acknowledge those things before God. But we don't leave it there. The psalmist doesn't leave it there and, and the majority of the, of the psalm uh, will, will not leave it there. And, and he, he goes on in verse number 10. And he turns to a higher authority than his own feelings. Look at, he says in verse 10, I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Something that's more reliable than the way I'm feeling about things right now. Something that's more steadfast and more secure and, and, and more trustworthy than my current emotions. What is that? The years of the mighty deeds of the Most High. He looks outside of himself, past his own feelings, and to the past. The past, the years of the mighty deeds of the Most High God. I have a, 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 a Psalter, which is a, a psalm book uh, of all of the psalms. And each of the psalms has uh, been just turned into a, a, a song that's able to be sung and, and it rhymes and, and it matches the way that we understand English poetry. And uh, one of the lines from Psalm 77, the one that we're looking at here, says this, Then I replied, such questions show that I, my weakness, need to know. The Most High has a firm right hand that through the years will change this stand. This is what the psalmist is, is, is realizing. That he, he, he remembers how God first established His covenant with His people. He's not just going back to the years of his life. He's not going back to the past of his own experiences. He's going back to the very beginning when God first established His people. And beginning in verse 11, he repeats this idea four times. He says the same thing four different ways to really get this understood to the reader here. He says he remembers God's deeds and then he turns it directly to God and he says, I will remember your wonders. I will ponder or consider all your work. I will meditate on your mighty deeds. And what he's doing is considering how God acted on behalf of his people at the very beginning. We're going back to the Exodus. We're going back to Israel leaving Egypt and going through the waters of the Red Sea and going through the wilderness. And, and, and this is where he goes back to. And what is the result? Look at verse number 13. When he reflects on God's past doings, when he considers not himself, not his feelings, but who God is and what God has done, this is what happens in verse 13. God, your way is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You've made known your might among the peoples. And notice that it doesn't say, God, your way is best. 
We know that. But that's not what he said. He doesn't say, God, your way is perfect. He says, God, your way is holy. What's the significance of saying, God, your way is holy? Well, to say that God's way is holy is to say that His way is worthy of worship. It's perfect in goodness and in righteousness. I read Kidner again. It was helpful here. He says, holy in such a context is a formidable word conveying the aspect of God as one who dwells in unapproachable light, fearful as an enemy, but glorious as a friend. The holiness of God is, is that character of God that, that makes those who are His enemies flee and perish and burn like melt like wax in the sun. And yet the same holiness of God is what allows those who are His to praise and to, be, to glory in it because He is a holy God. We celebrate the holiness of God when we sing in church. When we read His Word, we're, 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 we're identifying that we love the holiness of God. That's what he says here. God, your way is holy. Because God's way, the way that God does things, the way that God brings us through things, inspires us to worship and to praise and to give glory to God. And that's what the psalmist begins to do. Beginning in verse number 10, and for the rest of the passage, he simply praises God. And this lament psalm, this moaning, this, this moaning and groaning and, and, and mournful song turns to a happy praise song because he's looking at God. How great is our God? Who is like Him? I'll tell you, no one's like Him. Verse 14, you're the God who does wonderful, amazing things. And in verse 14, he identifies how God shows His wonder to two groups of people. And we're going back to the book of Exodus to, to understand this. He remembers first how God delivered Israel out of Egypt. He made his known, He's made His power known among the peoples. That would be Egypt. That would be all of the surrounding uh, people. Do you remember when, when uh, they were going to go into uh, Jericho and they went in and they, and they talked to Rahab, the spies talked to Rahab, and, and Rahab said, oh, we've heard what your God has done. How you cross the Red Sea. This is what they're, these are the peoples that, that know about it, the, the power of God and on behalf of his people, uh, the Egypt and, and the surrounding nations, but also God shows his power in the way that he redeems his people in verse 14. I'm sorry, verse 15. He redeemed his people with his own arm, not with someone else's help. God didn't come in and need an assist. God came in with his own arm, by his own might, by his own power and strength and did for His people what they needed done. And He describes in the next, in verses 16-18, through 18, He describes both metaphorically and literally the effect that God's power has. The, the waters were afraid and they trembled. The clouds poured out their water. The, the thunder and, and lightning was all around. The earth trembled and shook. But then notice this. I love this verse. Verse 19. Your way was through the sea. Now, just a moment ago, we read that his way is holy, and now he says that his way is through the sea. What could he be, what could he be talking about? Your way is through the sea. Well, if you remember your story about the Israel leaving Egypt, God led them out of Egypt. He led them to a dead end. He led them to the Red Sea. And the Egyptians were, all, were coming behind him, and there's nothing but wilderness to their left and to their right. And to the front of them was the Red Sea. There was nowhere for them to go. And the people of Israel began to mumble and complain and decide maybe we should turn back and God split the sea. And they went through the sea on dry, on dry ground to the other side. And when Egypt tried to chase them in, they perished. 
Your way, God, is through the sea. They recall this, this safe passage through Israel, but notice it says your footprints weren't seen. Your, your, your power was very evident even though we couldn't see you there. We couldn't see your footprints leading us, but you were there and you took care of us and you provided for us in the most miraculous of ways and we didn't even see it, but we know what you did. Not only did he redeem his people, but then as we get through the end in verse number 20, he led his people. He led them like a flock. He shepherded them. And he used the flawed human leaders of Moses who had a temper. And Aaron, who wasn't exactly the best priest, but he still used those men to shepherd his people. These verses are all reminiscent. All of that, what we've read from 10 to 20 are reminiscent of what's called the Song of Moses or the Psalm of Moses. And you can read about it in Exodus 15. And they describe the miraculous events that happened as, as they left Egypt. But I want to just read uh, two of them to you. Verse 11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And all of a sudden, the psalmist has changed from doubting God to praising Him for His faithfulness. At the beginning of the psalm, he was thinking, how can I, how can I understand God's faithfulness when it seems like it's ended to us? And now he's praising God for the way that he faithfully and, 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 and miraculously helped his people. The prayer results in his acknowledging that God has not only redeemed his people, but shepherds his people. He moves from restless faith to reassured faith. He moves from subjective feelings to the cold hard facts, the objective truths. God has not forgotten His people. Then or now, His chesed, His his steadfast love has not ceased. Then or now. The psalmist remembered that it was by God's sovereign power and grace that Israel left Egypt. Only by His sovereign power and grace. It wasn't because they were mighty in number. In fact, it was because they weren't. It was because God was mighty. Is because God was gracious and God chose them by His sovereign grace and He would continue to protect and sustain them by His sovereign grace. And with that same grace, He would be faithful to His promise. And this psalm reveals to us, as we read it, that God continues to care for His people and keeps His promises, not based on their deserving it, but because of His faithful, steadfast love. So, when our present experiences look bleak. And when we can't see what God is doing, and we don't know what God is going to do, and we don't understand why, and we cry out, how long is it going to be like this? We need not wonder if God is good, if He is able, or what He will do. You don't have to worry about that. We may not know exactly what God will do in our situation. But we can be confident that based on what he has done, whatever he will do will be good. It will be holy. It inspires our worship. 
So let us remember what God has done. Not just in our own lives. But go back to the pages of Scripture and see what God has done for His people. Because the facts speak for themselves. God is good. He has graciously redeemed His people and lovingly shepherded them from the very beginning. And He will continue to do so through every valley, every storm, every wilderness. And in our remembering, let it lead us to worship. For His way is holy. We finish with this quote from Christopher Ashe again. He says, as we pray this psalm, we learn to mourn and pray more grievously and at the same time to know more deeply the comfort of sovereign grace. Listen to the words of the Psalm 77 from the Psalter. The days of old I think upon, the years that long ago have gone. I ponder songs I sang at night, my heart and spirit search for light. Forever will the Lord reject can I his favor not expect? Forever has his kindness ceased, and is he from his word released? Did God forget to show his grace? Does wrath his mercy now replace? Then I replied, such questions show that I my weakness need to know. The Most High has a firm right hand that through the years will change the stand. We know God is good. Not because we feel it. Not because we're experiencing good things. But because... We've seen it from the very beginning because His Word reminds us. And when things don't go the way that we hope they will or want them to, we don't have to wonder. We know. His promises are sure. He is faithful. Great is His faithfulness. We come together and we remind ourselves of these truths. We acknowledge that we have the feelings. And we come together and we say, but... It doesn't matter what we're feeling right now, it's what we know. These things we know. 